Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the sports and feminist podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and what follows is an interview that I conducted with co-host Amira Rose Davis with Jack Swarbrick, the athletic director for Notre Dame. We were there to record a live show, and Jack was nice enough to give us a little time. He's been instrumental as befits the importance of Notre Dame in the college athletics landscape in responding to the challenges and navigating the challenges of the NCAA um, as it changes uh, with NIL, with other factors in uh, college athletics. So here you go. Yeah, we really just wanted to talk to you about how you came into this position and what it looks like to run a modern-day athletic department, and we have a few other questions. Yeah, that's our starting point, you know. Yeah. How, do you, how do you get to be here, your interests here? Um, mine, mine was a very non-traditional right. path. Out of law school, I chose to move to Indianapolis because I wanted to get involved in the community, and I thought I could get involved there more quickly than in the West Coast cities I had interviewed in. I was at Stanford Law, so I interviewed in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle. Um, When I moved to Indianapolis, they had just launched a major economic development strategy around amateur sports. A a brilliant strategy, I say that because I didn't help create it, Um, that really reacted to the fact that Congress was in the process of passing the Amateur Sports Act. Mm-hmm. The Amateur Sports Act took the national gov- created the national governing bodies in the United States, um, sort of broke up the AAU and gave the sports their autonomy. The city had a strategy for attracting as many as, of these new businesses as they could, and so they did, and then building facilities that supported those national governing bodies and hosting major events. That was the logical place for me to get involved in the community. I didn't do it because I love sports and wanted to be a volunteer at sports events so much as, okay, this is where the community action is. If I moved to Indianapolis today, it'd be life sciences. Mm-hmm. You know, it, just, it's a, it just happened to be. And so I, I just volunteered. I mopped floors, passed out towels, took tickets, did whatever you needed to do to support what was a remarkable, growing volume of amateur sports events. And then it really grew. We hosted a lot of Olympic trials, a lot of world championships, a lot of final fours. My responsibilities grew as a volunteer. And so you started to meet the people who ran those organizations. And so eventually they came to me for legal help as a lawyer. And I had to make a decision to sort of switch my practice to help them. And so I did. So as a volunteer, my life was about sports. And then all of a sudden, as a professional, I was also engaged in, in, in sports issues. Um, that sort of became my life there, and that's what I did, and loved doing it. Um, among the things I did in that leadership role was to lead the relocation of the NCAA to Indianapolis, led Indianapolis's bid, mm-hmm. and that created relationships with NCAA people. So I started working for the NCAA as well as the Olympic sports. And then completely out of the blue, I did not desire to be an athletic director. I got a call from Father Jenkins asking me, the position was open, and asking me if I was interested. I told him I wasn't. Um, But then I would love to talk to him about it because I had strong views about 
what Notre Dame ought to be looking for. Mm. He said, come on up and we'll talk. And um, we had a dinner and at the end of dinner, I called my wife as I was walking out of the restaurant and said, I still don't know if I want to be an AD, but I want to work for this guy. Mm. So that was my perspective. He had a similar reaction to the dinner uh, and told me later that he was even less interested in me as a candidate than I was in the job. <laughs> he, he, had, he had zero interest in hiring me, but he had had so many people tell me he needed to talk to me mm. that he was just checking it off his list. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had a great conversation and 15 years later, here I sit. So what do you think is the purpose of the NCAA? Um, you were involved, as you said, you know, what do you see its role right now? Well, its role right now is <laughs> largely non-existent. Um, it's about what it will be, right? I mean, it, it, its authority has lapsed in a lot of ways. And so we needed to run championships and run them effectively um, and make sure the experience of all the student athletes, the championships are what they should be. We, we, we need somebody to set rules, you know, competition rules to start with. Um, and then probably compliance just because no one else wants to do it. Um, but I think that's really the probably the future scope, those three things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it certainly feels like we're at a moment in the which both the NCAA and really college sports are dealing with um, massive transitions. No like, question. You know, um, and thinking about both of us, our historians, we look at, you know, how college sports have changed over the decades, but certainly we're on the precipice of a new moment. And it seems to me like one of the challenges the NCAA faced, as you said, accountability, authority, all these things, but certainly the pandemic was also one of this area where all of these things were kind of tested. And it felt like, and it feels like between that and name, image, and likeness and that ADs and their relationship to the NCAA are constantly in flux and shifting. And I'm wondering, you talked a lot about vision for the NCAA. Um, what do you think the NCAA is currently doing most effectively? And what do you think the greatest area of improvement needs to be? What it's doing most effectively is probably championships. Mm -hmm. I mean, notwithstanding they've had some recent yeah. challenges um, that we're counting on having been fixed. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. I mean, what what and, and I want to be careful when I'm talking about the NCAA, yeah. mm -hmm. it's us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a yes. membership association, Absolutely. right? You know, I, I get frustrated when my colleagues talk about it like it's a third party. I was at a meeting once where a coach was railing against a piece of proposed legislation, right? He was really upset about it. And a fellow coach who was chairing the meeting said, Shut up and sit down. Your school introduced the legislation. <laughs> oh, wow. right? He had no idea. Um, but yeah, so I just want to. Yeah, this is yeah. This no, is that those guys are making. Yeah. No, it's important. Important. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's us. Um, and and through the NCAA, we failed to articulate a new model for college athletics, and we clung to an absurd model amateurism um, that made zero sense. And even after we were given that message by courts, right. we still pursued it, right? It just drove me a little crazy as a former lawyer. Mm -hmm. Why do you think? What was so 
Why do you think people clung so hard? I think part of it was a lack of sort of true engagement, understanding the issues, getting involved, knowing it. Um, it was easy to say, we're protecting amateur athletics, right? It was you know, like a slogan. Um, and the other was, I think, some dubious legal advice. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I never understood it, right? How is amateurism a value? Mm. What's good about it, right? I mean, it's not an argument for compensation directly. It's just like, why is it better? Right? What's the what's the value of it? And of course, the history of it is awful. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Goes back to the Henley, the original Henley Regatta, and the desire to keep commoners out of the race. Um, so um, it was a massive frustration of mine that we, we clung to that argument and that model long after we should have. Instead of taking the lead and articulating, okay, here's a, here's here's what we ought to do. Here's here's a future model. We may not have gotten it right through that process, but we advocated leadership when we didn't try. Mm. Yeah. So when we're thinking about, we'll, we'll shift it a little bit to your role at Notre Dame specifically. I really, when you say appreciate um, talking about Indianapolis and Indiana, because I think that a lot, like you're right, Indianapolis has been the center for many championships things. I know you had a hand in bringing the Super Bowl there to date. My favorite Super Bowl I've ever been to is well organized, uh, which I think <laughs> says something. But I think it's important because we think about these like locations of like the center of, of collegiate sports and sports in general. And I think it's a important, you know, site to focus on. But thinking about like these gaps between the past and the present, one of the things that is coming up across many campuses um, is the role of boosters in and how we've seen at UT, um, around the eyes of Texas, we've seen at Ole Miss, at Penn State, where I used to work. Um, you know, there was a number of very racist letters sent to our football players for how their hair is or, you know, oh, yeah. what style of clothes they wear. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a widening gap between um, boosters, especially around big time sports and the current student body and the current college athlete experience. And I'm wondering how um, you're navigating it with a robust alumni group here. And it feels like we're standing in a moment where the gap between alumni visions or booster visions for the programs don't always align with either the work that is being done in athletics and especially the experiences of modern college athletes. Are you finding that gap to be here at Notre Dame? And if so, how are you navigating it? Are you trying to head it off? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> but I recognize yeah. it. Yeah. You know, we got ADs and coaches being fired where the president doesn't know what happened. Right. Um, you know, or wasn't engaged. I think a core uh, enabler or agent of that is that the average tenure of university president is now less than five years, mm -hmm. right? So continuity and being able to sort of establish your authority is really hard to do when the windows are that small. The model's very different here. Um, my boss is in his 17th year. Father Hesper was 30-some years. And, and, and so we just have the benefit of much greater continuity and, as a result, um, an empowered presidency. Mm. And 
from my perspective, it helps me enormously. Right? I mean, I, I, I benefit enormously from engagement with trustees and others because they tend to be really successful business people who have faced a lot of issues, and so I benefit from that, right? But there's no effort to sort of get involved and tell us how to operate our business. Now, will I hear from fans when we do something? So when our student athletes chose to kneel for the anthem, of course I heard from fans. I didn't have a single person in the university structure tell me to change our policy. Um, so we're a little different now. Mm -hmm. um, but that relates to, you know, I know you've been doing the Stand Together initiative. I was actually here a few years ago to do a panel on athletic activism. Um, and I find it really interesting because when you're talking about it, it's so clear that, like, the foundation of, of your sporting background is law, is business, is thinking about it back. And with the Stand Together initiative, it brings in a lot of humanities, you know, concepts and ideas and one of the things like um, Brenda has been tracking and, and some studies are about how faculty and university communities engage with athletics and one of the patterns that we've seen is that humanities professors tend to be some of the least engaged uh, with university athletic programs. It's easier to do like business tie-ins or journalist tie-ins and then people who perhaps look at sports more critically or think about the intersection of sports and social justice um, until the last few years have been marginalized and then we had a moment. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, the kind of force behind these initiatives that you've been doing at Notre Dame and the successes uh, and your hope for the continuation of them um, and how you've met this moment where it seems to like all of a sudden present an opportunity to engage in discussions that perhaps weren't there or weren't ready to have before. Yeah. Um... It starts with the students and whether the concern is mental health or nutrition or social justice, giving them the room to help lead and to express their views helps enormously. So, so we have several, several vehicles. Um, one is what most schools have, which is SAC, a student athlete advisory council. <laughs> and, and we have one that's pretty good. Ours, some institutions, one team will elect a member, and that's that's SAC. Our SAC is open to every student athlete who wants to participate in yeah. it. So it, it, it tends to be very uh, inclusive in that regard. Um, secondly, you have to have people who, who accept the responsibility, and in some cases whose job defines the responsibility of turning that concern into action and, and you know, it's, it's the follow-up that becomes the challenge, yeah. not the discussion. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. We've identified the issue. There's great concern here. What are we going to do? Yeah. And, and having, initially for us, that was Angie Terrain, who's now the athletic director at the University of Chicago, and now J.P. Abercrombie. It's wonderful. Yeah, mm -hmm. phenomenal. Um, both phenomenal. We are so fortunate to have Angie and then convince J.P. to move from a warm climate to yeah. here. Um, <laughs> but but so that's the that's the next step of it is, is to do that. And and my job in beyond creating a, that opportunity is is 
to make sure that I articulate what we're doing. That we're, you know, student athletes need to be assured that I'm supportive and that we're prepared to back the things they want to do and the conclusions they've drawn. How closely do you work being a lawyer, you know, with the Title IX? I'm not a lawyer. Office here, or yeah. being in a law. Yeah, I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> you know, having been a lawyer, how, how do you, how closely do you work with the Title IX person here? Missy, in, in our That's office, is our, is our Title IX coordinator, right? Mm -hmm. She's the longest serving employee. She's somebody I work extremely closely mm -hmm. with, so, yeah. Because when we got here, we got these t-shirts that were celebrating the 50th anniversary right. of Title IX, and um, they're great t-shirts. And so I'm wondering, like, where, where do you see it now, though? What do you do? Do you see Title IX as Notre Dame as having effectively implemented it and we're good no. here? Or what's no. left to do? No, there's lots to do. It's, there, I, I, don't, I don't imagine there's an end to that journey, right. um, at least in my career, certainly in my career, right? So I think there are aspects of it where I can look at it and say, okay, we're, we're in really good shape. So our female student athletes tend to lead more than our male student athletes. And so president of SAC, or to answer your question, we also have a steering committee, which is the highest level of our governance. It includes some faculty members, administrators, coaches, and student athletes. And the student athletes are the majority of the steering committee. But but it's it's the roles they play. They're, they're, mm -hmm. For whatever reason in my time here, our female student athletes have either been more willing or more effective in leading those, those entities and so Almost always, it's been a female leader. So that that's a, that's one small example. Yeah, we're we're doing okay there. Um, I think in terms of resources on a sort of board comparative base uh, basis, baseball, softball, tennis, tennis. You know, we're in pretty good shape. Everybody who has a football program has an overall challenge with the allocation of assets. Right, because football produces, in our case, about 90% of our assets. Mm. They consume about 34% of our assets. Um, so, you know, that's always going to create a disparity that you have to try and reduce and address. Mm -hmm. hmm. And so what do you think, besides that, there's less to do here at Notre Dame with Title IX? When you're like, this is a journey that goes on and on, where do you see, like, the tough work to, that's yet to be done. It, 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 it's the continued investment, if you will. So okay. it, it's less about deficiencies, right? Uh, I, don't want, I don't want to minimize that, you know, we all have deficiencies, but our basketball facilities are great. Mm -hmm. Our tennis facilities aren't. Mm -hmm. There's a Title IX dimension to that, right? I mean, our women's basketball facilities and our men's basketball facilities mm -hmm. are identical, right? And, and that's good. But it's not just that tennis players deserve the same sort of quality of resources. There's a there's a Title IX dimension to that. You have a you have a female tennis team that that needs better resources, and it's not just that the men have bad resources too. It's that you need to bring both of them.
Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A lot of universities right now, one of the biggest challenges is figuring out how to treat trans students in athletics programs. Have you had those conversations? Do you have ideas about how Notre Dame will address that in the future? Yeah, we've spent a lot of time on it because we, we've had student athletes we needed to support. Okay. Um, and you know, you can talk about it all day long. It, it, it's what you learn when you have a, a student in, who's, who's trans or who's questioning identity, and you know, and, and so we benefit. We have benefited a lot from that. Um, it's as it's as small as language, and as big as okay. Do our facilities support this? Mm-hmm. How does it? That is how, how will it work? You know, what's at what point in the journey does the identity of a member of the team or which locker room you use or whatever change? And, and it, it, it's been really helpful to engage the student athletes in that. The student athlete who's transgender and his or her teammates. Yeah. Right, in the, in the discussion, it's been great. So I'm thinking along the lines of those conversations that you're having, and I'm wondering to what it looks like to deal with issues that are such flashpoints nationally on campus. And I'm thinking a lot about how discussions, I know I've been a part of with student athlete groups around bodily autonomy, how that works at a Catholic institution yeah. um, when especially uh, student athletes who have reproductive capabilities have been speaking up about um, fears moving forward with, with Roe being gone. And I'm wondering if there's even a language to talk about it here because it's a Catholic institution or if you're seeing those discussions happening and how you're navigating those waters as well. Yeah. Um, it's not just a Catholic institution. It's a Catholic academic institution. Right. Right? And academic freedom, um, the opportunity to pursue areas of interest, and uh, really important. And, and I don't want to, others can speak for the university as the university, right? But um, I, I think the track record is great. Uh, 
that of student affairs as a priest, Father Jerry Ollinger, and, and his focus on creating an environment that's welcoming yeah. for all students has, has really been effective from my perspective and, and could be proud of what, what he's doing. Now, are there differences because it's a Catholic institution? Of course. Mm -hmm. We have single-sex dorms. Right. And so you wind up with gender identity issues in dorm assignments. Um, you know, it's just different than a place who has, most places have co-ed dorms now. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we run into some, yeah. some different, different issues. You, you, the university can strongly advocate, advocate as a university for the church's position mm -hmm. on something like uh, reproductive rights. Um, without in any way um, denying or limiting the ability of those on campus who disagree or to communicate and to, to advocate for their position. And I, I think that's the environment that exists here. But for, for example, the, I'm thinking um, of uh, some of the Jesuit schools in the Northeast um, that I'm more familiar with, they have a hard time getting, for example, contraception in the student health care. If a student athlete was looking for that, is that a problem here at Notre Dame or do they have contraception readily available at the student health center? Um, I, and maybe I, you don't know. I know you're not in charge of this. <laughs> On both the issue of insurance and what the student health center does, you should talk to somebody else. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been part of those discussions. Right. I, I don't want to represent the policies because I, I, I just might get it wrong. So I have a, a question about um, accountability in athletic departments. And I've worked um, at institutions who are dealing with the aftermath of high public scandals or harmful things and whatnot. And I find that a lot of people are trying to figure out, and some not trying at all, to figure out like how to have a presence of accountability on campus and how to move forward with um, also recognizing when harm has happened and putting into place ways to prevent that from happening again. And so it came to mind because obviously I feel like there's been a renewed conversation around Manti because the documentary came out on um, Netflix and I saw he was back on campus, um, which looked like a wonderful welcoming back for him. Um, but I was thinking of these moments, not everybody gets these like moments to be welcomed back and to kind of revisit something that was very painful or very harmful. And I'm wondering, you know, not to get into any particular situation, but I'm wondering if you had for athletics developed the philosophy of accountability um, around either how you have in the past or hope to in the future meet harm when it happens. Because I think that every athletic department has dealt with something. Um, but I'm wondering really about like how we develop ideas about accountability um, uh, moving forward. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to minimize the uh, the focus on revive accountability. Yeah. But what I've really made sort of among the highest priorities for me is creating a culture of candor. Okay. It's 
Every one of those situations, Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, there were people who knew something was wrong and were afraid to speak up, mm -hmm. right? Felt that they couldn't challenge the power of a coach or, 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 or whoever it may be. That, I view, is our greatest risk, okay. right? If, if people won't speak up, if they won't identify the potential problem, you got no chance of solving it. And you get to accountability too late in the process, right? It's after it's blown up and, and maybe your ability to enforce accountability has been taken over by the prosecutor, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, can we have that environment? And how do you do it? So we talk about it all the time. We try and celebrate it when when people get demonstrated, right? Make it happen. And and it's it's critical that I reflect it, right? So the people who, who succeed in this leadership team um, are the ones who tell me I'm wrong. And and, and that's part of that culture of Canada, right? And and that's why we work so hard to environment. You know you can you can have the hard conversation without compromising your position here or your relationships. Yeah. And that's that's the message we're trying to send. Interesting how hard that is with with our student athletes. Oh. Um, because they don't have hard they have very few hard conversations directly. They communicate them electronically. Oh. And and you need in the team dynamic leaders who are willing to have hard conversations with their teammates. Yeah. It may be about sports performance, or it may be about some attitude they're reflecting in the locker room or someplace else. And uh, it's just, it's generationally, it's tougher to develop that yeah. now than it used to be. You know, somebody will break up with a girlfriend or boyfriend not by text message. Yeah. Um, you know, that doesn't foster a culture of candor. I think I think that's pretty yeah. much all I have. Yeah, we've covered what, a lot, and I, uh, I guess like as we're kind of coming to a conclusion, I'm wondering what is like the biggest lesson you learned on your journey in this position, um, and like what are you most proud of? I'm I'm, I'm most proud of sort of two related things. One is our ability to keep our students who are athletes integrated into the university as students. And part of it is university policy. A lot of it is what we do here in athletics as well. The, the isolation of student athletes into a separate community on our campuses is really troubling to me. And I think it's, I think it's our number one problem, right? And, um, really proud of. Uh, again, some of that university helps. Every student here has to live in a residence hall for three years. Right? In your freshman year here, you're probably living with somebody who doesn't know basketball from baseball. <laughs> um, but but that's what we want, right? That's the integration. There aren't different courses. There aren't, it's all, you know, we're, we're trying to address, we're trying to make nutrition better here. Mm -hmm. But right now, the vast majority of our student athletes eat all their meals in the dining hall. 
we only get some credit for it, but I'm really proud of the university that I'm part of for having having done everything we can to make sure that stays what we do here. Um, the thing I'm most proud of is the result. I mean, it's the the time I get to spend with former student athletes who talk about how impactful the experience was and, and what it's meant for their life. Um, you know, athletics is a rare opportunity to impact young people in a positive way. Too often it doesn't. But if you ask any professor, what's the ideal academic environment? You might disagree. But most would say, give me Give me a small group of students for an extended period of time. That's the athletic experience, right? I mean, you know, you are with those group of students for four, maybe five years, and you're impacting their lives uh, significantly. So, you know, it's it's seeing that happen. It's 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 making sure we have coaches who see themselves as educators. Um, you know, we use the ath the phrase student athlete in the industry. I don't know why we don't say coach educator, because um, they need to be. Um, we, we probably don't have enough who are, but uh, they they need to be. So I'm rambling, but it's that it's the, it's 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 recognizing that for all the challenges of athletics and all the things they get we get wrong, it still has an enormous opportunity to impact and to change lives and. I think we do a good job of demonstrating that. I guess my last question is, you had a non-traditional path into this position, and I'm wondering how we institutionalize some of these ideas that you're talking about across the industry that is set up to prioritize and measure success, not in you know, your measurements that you just gave, but in um, the ledgers and, and the win column and the trophy room. Um, the recruitment, the booster dollars. And so I'm wondering if, if you have ideas about widening the access and path to athletic administrator positions, um, particularly for students of color who are very underrepresented, for women who are a consequence of Title IX, very underrepresented in athletic administration, um, and to these marginalized student athletes who are not reflected necessarily in, in admin. Um, and how do we, looking forward to the future, what are your hopes for the business of athletic administration. Yeah. Um, the, the, the first part of that for me is recognizing the opportunity you have. Right? I mean, I can't speak for all institutions, but this institution, we have a greater opportunity to be inclusive and to be diverse because of the nature of sport. Right? Our student cohort tends to be more diverse than the student body as a whole. Right? Mm -hmm. um, our professional employees, coaches principally, tend to be more diverse. So you've got, you've got an opportunity that in other places in the university may or may not exist. Um, and and you've, you've failed if you don't seize the opportunity. And every business I've ever led is the my my executive team has been dominated by females because mm. um, y'all are smarter. 
Um, but it, 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 you know, it it's creating that opportunity, right? And and building the best team you, you, you can build. And the way to do that, I think, with student athletes is to recognize that your commitment to them, your engagement with them, isn't limited to their time here. You need to continue to be a resource. Um, you know, we've got student athletes going to med school and law school and getting their MBAs. We have some interest in athletic administration, some interest in, interest in coaching. How do we get them involved? How do we create opportunities for them? You know, we have a, we have a fellowship out of this office which is designed to do that to, for a student athlete um, who's interested in administration to, to, to pave the way. But yeah, um, you recognize that you have, you, you can do it more effectively than most other places in the university and accept the responsibility to do that, but set up real programs, real things. I mean, have people in place. We were one of the first schools in the country to have a, a career services person who was just focused on student athletes. Not because there's something about their attractiveness that requires a unique service. It's that we were holding job fairs when they were in practice. Oh. You know, we, we, mm -hmm. this came to my attention when my swimming coach came in to see me many years ago and said, my captain just quit. And I said, well, I mean, what happened? What you do, you know? <laughs> and, and he said he had a session with the career office here, the career services office here, and they told him, given the lack of activities on his resume, he'd never get the job he wanted. I said, wait a minute, that's a problem. I mean, we've got to be able to translate the sport experience and the benefits there into what you're seeing. You know, yes, this student athlete didn't have a summer internship. Because he's trying to make the Olympic team, it, it, you know, you just have to have to convert that into. Things. So anyway, it's it, it's 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 one thing to say it is another thing to do tangible things like, okay, career services has to be in place to do this. If someone's interested in sport administration, they know how to start them off, building the pathway. Well, Jack, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, it's very exciting yeah. to be yeah. here, and we're looking yeah. forward, especially to. I love that y'all hired Salima. I'm very excited to see uh, how she builds up this uh, volleyball program y'all have. And of course, we're big fans of women's basketball as well. So uh, it's just, a, it's been great. So that's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstig. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find links to our merch at our bonfire store if you want, you know, some very belated holiday presents. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. I'm Brenda Elsie. And on behalf of all of my wonderful co-hosts, burn on and not out.